in Hebrews chapter 13. We're in the final chapter here in our study in the book of Hebrews. We're about to wrap this one up. We'll be moving on to the book of Daniel. And uh, I'm excited about where we're going. I'm excited about where we are, but I'm really excited about where we're going because Daniel is one of those books that it, uh, it's just an exciting book. You have this crazy, insanely on-fire character, Daniel, who ultimately, you know, I think if, if you look at raw dependence upon the Lord in extreme circumstances, Daniel may actually hold the record in Scripture for that particular group of people. Uh, he is just one of those characters you can look at, and, and very often as I'm teaching young people, I'll use the life of Daniel as an, as an analogy because he was a young man uh, when he was taken into captivity. And so uh, excited about being there. And tonight as we finish up, a few final thoughts here in, in the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting to me how the writer of the author of Hebrews now does what every good Bible expositor should do concludes it by condensing everything that's been said up to this point into a few final thoughts. You really want to do that to communicate the truth of God's Word. It's essential that you get a takeaway from a Bible study. And we try and do that all the time here. But here we have a whole chapter kind of devoted to that takeaway from the book of Hebrews. We've seen this incredible picture of who God is in Jesus Christ. And remember, God incarnate in human flesh, that's Jesus who Jesus is relative to any other world religions you want to name, but very specifically to, to Judaism. And so here you have these Christians who came from a Jewish heritage who were thinking about possibly returning to Judaism, and they've given all these wonderful pictures of the better sacrifice, he's the better high priest, he is all of these things that we've seen in, the, in this study that we've been in for the last several months. And now it comes down to, you're going to notice, the very words of Jesus. They're really the things that Jesus said about himself. And so it, it all boils down to ultimately the application of the interpretation that means something. You, you have to take what you hear and bring it into your mind and into your heart, and then it should affect the way you live. And if it doesn't affect the way you live, then we need to go back and, and maybe relearn that. And so tonight we get the application really of the entire book uh, we'll begin part one this week. We'll finish up the book of Hebrews next week, and then we're going to start the book of Daniel. And so I am excited. Last time, much better things. This time, a few final words that we can really take away to apply uh, in our lives as we walk this incredible walk that we have because of who Jesus is. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to speak. Father, as we come tonight, just simply expectantly, Lord, as we have worshipped you and we've lifted our hands and our voices to you in song and offered up our hearts to you, Lord, for you to speak truth into our lives. Lord, help us to never fall into the trap of just simply being hearers. Lord, help us to be doers of your word. And Lord, as we, as we hear the word and it goes in deeply, God, would you transform us, shape us, mold us. Lord, would we come out looking like Jesus and talking like Jesus and acting like Jesus and Lord going as he went and and having the the steadfastness Lord in this world which is upside down to walk up right side up Lord uh, we love you we thank you for this time tonight would you bless each and weight us from the burdens of the week Lord cause our minds to be open to receive and our hearts Lord just in enraptured in love with you we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1, it begins. You'll notice I'm teaching with glasses. I may begin to do this all the time. It's because I can actually see you. So those of you who have been sleeping because I told you I couldn't see you in the back row, you are now in deep trouble, okay? Because I can tell you how many freckles Robert's got in the back row wearing these puppies. I have to look underneath them, though, so it's a weird thing, which I do when I'm teaching other places where the sanctuaries are huge. I have to wear glasses or it looks like a blur, so I may start doing it all the time. And I may not. I may just mess with you. <laughs> Verse 1 here in Hebrews chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Would you circle that? Because realistically, that is exactly what Jesus said. If you remember in John's Gospel... In the 13th chapter, the 35th verse, it says, By this all men, 
everybody, doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That it is brotherly love, in fact, that is the deciding factor in anyone's life who names the name of Christ. If there's a lack of love, then one can say that there's a lack of Jesus. If there's a lack of love, then you can say that there's a lack of representation of what the cross has brought into our lives. If there's a lack of love, then ultimately we have to question in and of ourselves, has that word gone in deeply? Is it engrafted into my life? Do I actually believe what I have heard? We must ask those questions when there's a lack of love. If we can act as the world acts, then we're no different than the world. But to act different than the world acts, and that is to have love, and to bear that love in every situation, especially to each other, then the world looks at that love and they say, that is uncommon love. That is a love that the world doesn't understand. It's not the love that you see post in pre-football games and basketball games and baseball games. It's not the love of the soap operas. It's not the love of movies. It's not the love of our modern-day novels. It is the love of Christ born out in our lives, which transcends every other type of emotion on this earth. Let brotherly love continue. He gives actually three things here. Do not forget to entertain strangers. You see, everybody has a heart to entertain people they know, like, and care for. That's not really all that hard. Matter of fact, when we throw our little soirees at our homes, which I know all of you do soiree throwing, (laughs) when you throw your soiree, it's a French word that means party. When you throw your party, you invite people generally that you already like. Amen? What do you think of when somebody comes that you don't know? What is your heart towards them? You see, Christ's heart is instantaneously, he loves everybody, including strangers, including the people that maybe you don't know whether you like them or not. Maybe they have some evidence upon them that you would say, no, I'm not really interested in knowing you, and I'm especially not interested in being your friend. You you see, the outflow of love and friendship should go beyond the boundaries of what we would be comfortable with. And that's really the second thing. I can be very comfortable around people that I like. You start talking about trout fishing, we are buds instantaneously. You, you, You talk about a myriad of things with most people and you have commonality of thought and idea, you're going to have no problem. Nick and I get together, we talk about guns. We talk about playing golf and having guns in our golf bag. That's what we do. It's not hard to enjoy quail hunting and golf all at the same time. You you see, but what about the guy who comes up and asks us why we're killing the quail on the golf course? You see, we're supposed to entertain strangers. We should bring him into our little party and go, here's a gun. No. Actually, what we're supposed to do is that he would know that we're Christians, not just quail killers or terrible golfers. You you, you see, our lives should be so impregnated with the love of Christ that when people get around us, they're like, man, there's something special about those guys. I want to know who they are and why they are that way. We should be entertaining people that we don't know. We should be likable is another way to look at it. We should have hospitality is another way to talk about it. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. How often do we miss the blessing of maybe God's representative in a very special way? Maybe the Lord has actually sent an angel to you, which he's done throughout all of Scripture. All of a sudden they're on the scene, Abraham, Lot, all stories of how they literally were ministered to or had angels in their presence. How often has it been that person that we would maybe walk away from, maybe that was the Lord just saying, you know what, I kind of want you to know where you are with me. Because he knows. But I want you to know. I want Jeff, I want you to know where your boundaries are. Because there are people that 
you, you won't entertain. Maybe that, maybe that homeless person was an angel and you missed out on an opportunity. Maybe that person that needs that ride and guys, you pick up guys, girls, you pick up girls. Be careful. Be wise. But maybe that person on the side of the road who, who needs a ride is, is maybe somebody who needs Jesus. And maybe you have the answer to, to what ails them. Maybe it's an angel just waiting to see, you know, where you're at. And it says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. I love the way that's phrased. Remember people who are in prison. Now, we think about this, and the first thing that happens to us is we think about our penal system. We think about people who are literally imprisoned, and they're imprisoned because they're criminals. But the picture here is not actually criminals. The picture here is people who are imprisoned for their faith. People who do not have what you have in Christ Jesus in this world. And there are millions, if not billions, of them on this planet. Remember those who are in chains. Remember those who have no possible way to get free from what binds them. That can be the the poor. That can be the disadvantaged. That can be the inner city kid. That can be somebody in your neighborhood who's a latchkey kid. That could be some parent who's a single parent who's struggling in your neighborhood. Remember the prisoners, because I'll tell you, they are just as bound up as anybody behind bars. Amen? They are just as bound up as somebody behind bars. They don't know how they're getting out. They have no control over their life. And so you can see the application here. That if we love as Christ loves, and we put our boxes away, and we put our shelves away, and we put our tables away, and we put our ledgers away, and we put our stuff that we judge with away, and we simply say, God, let me be Jesus to everybody. And especially let me be Jesus to people who will never see him. They're going to miss him. Because everybody walks right by them. Nobody goes and visits them. You see, that's the essence of taking that Jesus that's now been portrayed in the book of Hebrews and saying, okay, I want that Jesus to be visible to the world. And so he goes. And those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also, and think of this for this this reason. When's it going to be your turn? Maybe you're not disadvantaged right now. Maybe your life is just red roses. I mean, it's just awesome. And I praise God, honestly, I praise God, that for many, if not most of us, that's actually the truth. We, we live ridiculously wonderful lives. But it may not always be that way, and it may not be that way tomorrow. I have been homeless. I have lived in the back of a car. I know what that's like. I can tell you it's not very fun when you're over six foot tall and you're sleeping in a space that's four foot three. I know what that's like. It may happen again. I can guarantee you with what our president did today. Good morning America goes on TV, proudly proclaims, I'm for gay marriage. First sitting U.S. president to ever make that claim. We enact hate laws. I cannot teach what my Bible plainly says. And if I do, I could go to jail for a hate crime. Now, I'm not trying to test the U.S. government. And I'm not trying to make a bold, baseless claim. But I'm telling you that that law, if it gets enacted and it comes after the pulpits of America, sign me up to go to prison. I'll go to prison. Maybe one day you'll need to remember where your pastor's at. Don't know. And I'm not trying to make light of it. But it could come a time. We may actually go back to that place that the early Christians understood very well, and that was it was very costly to be a follower of Christ. We're in the body too. And probably many of you in this room have had circumstances in your life that you can look back on. And man, I hope I never have to repeat that again. I hope I never have to go back to that place again. When you think those thoughts, 
try and pray for somebody that you can remember is in that place right now. Maybe it's somebody who's losing their home. Maybe it's somebody whose marriage is falling apart. Maybe it's somebody who is unemployed. Maybe it's somebody who literally is going to jail. Maybe it is someone who's imprisoned by their own stupidity even. Because realistically, when it all comes down, uh, none of us deserve what we have. And some people have made mistakes that are larger maybe than the mistakes that you've made, but nonetheless, you and I are in the flesh too. We walk the same walk as everybody else. And but for the grace of God, you and I could be in exactly that same situation that that person struggling is. Don't forget that, because that's Christ's love. Christ said, I didn't come to heal the well. He said, I came for the sick. You see, the people who already are okay don't need a physician. I'm paraphrasing. But the sick need a physician. Maybe you're not sick right now. But you probably used to be sick. I know you were sick in the head. Some of you still are. I sure am. You see, we're just this far from disaster every day. Aren't we? Realistically? How many people's lives are changed in an instant by a car accident? Or maybe a cancer diagnosis? Or a job that they thought they were going to retire from and they're out there on the, on the far end of life and all of a sudden the downsizing happens and their, their new boss is headquartered in Beijing. And their job's been cut. Wasn't anything on their part. You can be in prison pretty quick. Don't forget that. He goes on to talk about a handful more things. Verse 4, it says, Marriage is honorable among all. It's the reason I made the reference to our president's actions today. Because marriage is defined by God. It's not defined by society. And in fact, it is the basis of the societal norms that exist around the world. It has always been so. It is clearly defined, and the reason it's clearly defined is humankind would not exist without the institution of marriage as a general rule. It's the reason for stability. It's the reason for social norms. It is the reason for the rule of law. Marriage is the foundational unit of all human society. And when you break down the marriage between a man and a woman, and there ceases to be children that are produced in that union, because like it or not, two men and two women cannot produce children, this world will die out very quickly if the entire world takes up the position of our president. Now, do I know that's a far-fetched statement? Yes, I do. But the point is this. God said marriage is honorable among all. And it's defined by him. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And when Adam's loneliness was seen by God, God created and presided over the very first marriage in the Garden of Eden. And I will make a helper who is comparable, his helpmate, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. And if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you cannot, hear me well, you cannot be for gay marriage. You can't, if you're a Bible-believing Christian. And so when it is attacked, we have to be the voice that says, not on my watch. You can call it anything you want, but you can't call it marriage. Because God defined marriage. My Bible defines marriage. It came from God. It is not a civil institution. It is recognized by civil institutions as the basic unit of society. But God ordained it, and God defined it. Now, does that mean that two men can't live together? Of course not. If that's what they want to do, nobody's, nobody's interested No pastor is interested in in interrupting the free will of anybody. But we must stand for the truth. Because marriage is honorable among all. It ceases to be honorable when it's no longer marriage. 
it becomes a dishonorable arrangement. And that's why we must stand for marriage, biblically speaking. And the bed undefiled. It's interesting that the sexual component of marriage is now brought into play. Why is that? Because it was for the purpose of filling the earth. There is a purpose for marriage. Marriage is supposed to be for the procreation of humankind. And if the marriage is honorable, and the result of that is the sexual union of a man and a woman that produces children, then in essence it's saying the marriage union produces sex. It's actually pleasing to God. That's the reason the sexual revolution has messed up this country and everybody's bought into it. It's because they've tried to take marriage out of the physical union of a man and a woman, said it's just recreation. God designed the two to be together. That is the only way he designed it. We're going to get to this in 1 Corinthians, and it will be a PG-13 rated message. God defined marriage. God defines what is acceptable in a sexual union, and he is the one to whom we will answer. Because if we're not answering to God, then it doesn't matter what everybody does. But we are. But fornicators, notice this, and this is, this is in essence a, a doubling of the statement. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why do you suppose it says that? There's two groups of people that are listed there. Just in case anybody would want to say, well, you know, it didn't talk about me. Uses the word fornicator and it uses the word adulterer, in the Greek language it actually says exactly the same thing, except in context, one outside of marriage and the other in marriage. It is saying, plain and simple, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and God will judge it, period. Makes a lot of people very upset. Well, you're trying to get into our bedroom. Nope. God defined the marriage union. God defined the sexual union. God gets to make the requirements for both. And if you take it outside of his requirement, it is perhaps one of the most socially destructive things that you can ever do. Because it tears down the family. It breaks down the union of marriage. It's the reason our country is a mess. It's estimated right now that divorce in this country is costing America nearly a trillion dollars annually. Lost tax revenue, doubled up homes, insurance policies, you name it, it gets to everything. Every social problem that we have can be traced back to a broken home. We need to stand where God stands. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying is you can tell what happens when people stop loving Jesus. When they stop entertaining strangers. When they no longer care about people they don't know. When the marriage falls apart. When sex becomes recreation. We've lost sight of Jesus. You see, that's how you can tell when a country's going the wrong way. And I say to you, you just got described for you the United States of America. That's our problem. You talk about lack of love. Sometimes I, I can't even read news articles anymore because there's nothing but a bunch of hate being slung back and forth. You're sitting in church and I'm preaching you the truth from God's word. That is very, 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 very different than two probably unsaved people, just screaming and yelling at each other at the top of their lungs on a news program about who's wrong and who's right and why who's this and who's that. There is a general lack of love in our world and especially in this country. We have the capacity, think of this for a second, we have the capacity, according to the United States government anyway, we have the capacity to nearly feed the entire world, just the U.S., What are we doing with that? Think about those things when you think about what's Christ doing in our country. 
because of Christ is who we are. And fully in this country, about a third of us honestly claim to be Christians. There are some estimates as high as 75%. That's a lot of Christians. wonder how many of those Christians are actually being loving, entertaining strangers, keeping marriage holy before the Lord, making sure that their sexual lives are in the context of what Scripture says they ought to be. Let your conduct notice this. Be without covetousness. What it's saying is, is let your lifestyle, that's actually the best word that you can use there. Let not just your conduct, your actual lifestyle, the whole of how you handle yourself in this world. Let the whole of how you handle yourself in this world be without covetousness. How many things do you think we would solve if we actually lived that? I sat there and thought about this verse this afternoon. Let the sum of who I am as a human being be without wanting other people's stuff. Or more importantly, being content with the stuff I already have. Now, you know what? There would be people who would shoot me because you're not going to buy new cars. You're not going to lease new cars every two or three weeks. You're probably not going to trade up your house to where you have twice as much house as you actually need. You're probably going to have a simpler life at a slower pace. And there's a lot of people who would be upset about that. But I think ultimately it would bring an awful lot of happiness to most people. Things just simply slowed down. We learned to do with less. I mean... Seriously, how many people need 50 pairs of shoes? Seriously. Well, there are some of you ladies that are raising your hands. I recognize that. I'll pick, I'll pick on the guys. Seriously, how many guns do we need to actually have? Lots. Preach it. More guitars, yes. And we could each have our own little club. I'm in the I Covet Only Guitars Club. You you see what happens? We've become so conditioned by the world that we have actually begun to think outside of God's parameters. Now, what I just said was not going to preclude anyone from having the things that God wants for you, but it does stop us from wanting everything everyone else has. And it makes us satisfied with the things that we already have, which is the secret to material contentment. Because if I'm really happy with what I have, God can give me anything else and I'm still happy, amen? But if I'm not happy with what I have, I will never be happy with what I get. It's a heart issue. It's a Christ issue. That's why Jesus plainly stated Wherever your heart is, that's your temple of worship. And I'm paraphrasing again. Because you can't have two guts. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, is these exact words. And so those things that you hold dear are an indicator of where your heart's at. And if you're holding dear everybody else's stuff, Ultimately, you're saying to God, you didn't give me the stuff I need. You didn't give me the stuff I want. And you lose your contentment. Now, does that mean that you you can't desire a new house? Of course not. But when it becomes an overdriving issue, all of a sudden you're signing papers for a loan you can't afford. All of a sudden you're buying a car that maxes out your credit. All of a sudden you're doing things that you would not otherwise do because you have wanted something that God probably doesn't want for you because you are unhappy with the things that you already have. Contentment is huge. It's huge. There's a weird thing that happens as you age. You start wanting to have less. It's like, i got to wash that thing. i got to weed that. I have to mow the lawn. I... I have a house. I have to paint the house. 
Now, Stefan likes it when we have to paint our houses, but, but for the rest of us, we look at it and, oh, Jesus, could we just sell it? You, you, you see, when you're content, those things aren't as big an issue. But when you're discontent, all of a sudden everything becomes problematic. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. It plainly states, be content with such things as you have. The way that's phrased in the original context of, of the structure of the sentence, it's saying this. Whatever you have is enough. The question is, will it be enough for you? What you have is enough. The question is, will it be enough for you? For he himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, now notice this, the focus is on heaven, amen? It's not on earth. Be content with such things as you have. Make sure you keep marriage correct, your physical union in marriage correct, that you have your eyes on loving like Jesus loved and loving others as Jesus loved others and making sure that there's no exclusions to that. And as you do that, then you don't hang on to the things of the world. You say, Lord, if you want me to have it, you give it to me. I'm going to thank you for it. But if I don't have it, I don't need it. That's a tough thing to do when the world's going You need this, you need that, you need this, you need that. I've shared with you before, and I'll I'll say it again now. By caloric intake, the pets in the United States of America eat a higher caloric diet than two-thirds of the rest of the world's human population. You, you, You see... Oh, well, I didn't didn't get my organic broccoli. And I went down to Trader Joe's, and they were out of the the bean curd tofu turkey lip thing that I always get. (laughs) Some of us are going, thank you, Jesus, that there's no tofu. but, But we get so bent on these little stupid things. We're just like, oh, you know, I can't have this. I don't have that. You know, my pomegranate orange tangerine squeezed juice mix is not at Albertsons anymore. Be thankful you don't have floaters in your water. Amen? Because most of the world has floaters in their water. That's the truth. That's the truth. I don't drink the water except at our facility in the entire nation of Brazil. Because I know where that water comes from. I put in some of the pipe that it flows through. I know where it comes from. You turn on the tap in Sao Paulo, you can do a little protozoa dance right there in front of you. Man, we get so tweaked over the simplest things. We're working on a project on Saturday. And if you know anything about me, I'm not a patient project person. That's a triple P, a patient project person. I'm an impatient project person. That's an IPPP. <laughs> Just so you get your acronym straight. You know, I don't want you to mess up. And the power goes out. I'm like, God hates me. First thing I think, it's just like, God, you know this is destroying my my productivity right now. Connie never heard me say these things because it was all me and God in my head. 37 seconds, the power came back on. And I'm like, hmm. All right. All right. So you were... Like five minutes later, it went out again for like seven minutes. Like, see, I knew that you were messing with my PPP thing. I got told, I'm just like, couldn't even think. And power goes back on. And that's weird how we are. We need to think some of those things through. 
I mean, so many simple things steal our joy. And before you know it, we're, we're not walking in love. We're not, we're not blessing people. We're not speaking kindly. We're, all of a sudden, everything goes out the window because you went to In-N-Out and you, you had to wait for four minutes instead of three. I'm just praising God for peanut oil. We need, we need to be thankful. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know why it says that? Because it puts into perspective absolutely everything else. If the net result of you let brotherly love continue, in other words, you're in Christ, and because of it you can actually agape people, you can love them unconditionally, and God loves you unconditionally because you're saved by grace and through faith. That faith was a gift. It was given to you so that you could believe. Because you're in that group, Jesus says to you, I will never leave you or forsake you. So what that's actually saying is, take a heavenly outlook on things. When you start to, oh man, you know, that guy has this, or that guy has this, or this woman has this, or that woman has that, or my friend has this, or my friend has that, or you know, I, I sure wish that, you know, my husband looked like, you know, well, whoever you girls like to look at, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> and you guys, I won't even talk to you. I won't even make reference. In Jesus' name, that way you're not stumbled. But as you're thinking through things that you occupy your time with on earth, He will never leave you or forsake you. Ought to be at the end of every conversation that you have with yourself and with God. Thank you, Jesus. And you don't deserve that either. It's not like you're some stellar, special person. It's just like, wow, I can, boy, <laughs> no way I'd leave you or forsake you. When I think about me, it's like, why is God hanging around is a better question. Why does Jesus actually love me? Because his love is not conditioned on the things that I possess. It's not conditioned on the things that I can think or do for him. It's conditioned purely on agape love. He loves me in spite of me is a better way to look at it. Which explains a lot. It really does. People have a tough time coming to Christ for this very reason. Because they can't let go of the world's love. They're judging Christ's love based on the world's love. And so they look at at the world's love, and well, I can't provide this, I can't do that, I don't look like this, I don't look like that, I don't have this in the bank or that in the bank. And so they feel like they have no value. Jesus is saying to you that all the value of the universe is tied up in his love for you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. Hallelujah. So, we may boldly say, that wasn't good enough. Check this out. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? You see, when you have a good grasp on the first part, the second part is the reality that you live in. Really, what can man do to you? Hey, I mean, what is it that, that mankind could exact from you? Think on this for a second. If the Lord will never leave you or forsake you, it then goes on to say that he's there. He's actually your, your ever-present help in a time of difficulty. When the storms come, he's there. And it says, what can man do to me? Think on this. The worst that man can do to you, I suppose, is someone walks up to you and shoot you at point-blank range, and you are dead. I think for most people, that's, you know, mankind would go, that's about as cold and calloused and horrible and awful as, as could happen. Which happens, unfortunately, every day in our world. That's the worst that mankind can come up with. I hate you so much that I'm going to walk up to you and I'm going to shoot you. That's the worst. Do you realize in light of what was just said, in light of heaven, that's not really that big a deal? Yeah, you're not going to be here anymore. And yes, people on this earth will miss you. But if they're in Christ and you're in Christ, you're in heaven and they'll be there soon. 
from God's perspective. What can man actually do to you? The answer is nothing. That's why Paul, as he wrote to the church at Rome, said, what can separate us from the love of God? Famine? Sword? Peril? Oh, that we would know the height and the depth and the breadth the length of God's love to us. What can man do to me? And it says, remember those who rule over you. And it's talking about civil rulers here, as well as those who are in the church. And those who have, should actually say, and those who have spoken the word of God to you. It's really, there's a separation there. It's really kind of picking both sides. It's emphasizing those who are in the, in your life spiritually. But it includes those who rule over you in every fashion. Because we need to be Christ to the world, or the world doesn't see Christ. Amen? That, that's, the, that's the reality of it. It's not all that tough to be Christians in front of other Christians. Amen? That's why Scripture declares to us, well, anybody can love those who love you. But the real love of God is born out when we love those who don't love you. Those who don't think like you do. Who hate your guts. Don't want anything to do with you because you are on the other side of the coin. Those who have spoken the word to you. Whose faith follow. It makes a statement there. It says, those who have brought you the word of God in a real and tangible way have spoken the word of God to you and it has been lived in them. Follow them. Note their example. Live like they live. I have, I have a number of men in my life that I, I look back on. Actually, a couple of ladies in my life. One of them being my wife. Look back on the example that they've set for me. What they have represented as Christ to me. Have loved me unconditionally. When I have been at my very worst when my life has not been as it should be, and they have taken the care to love me anyway. Follow that. Follow them. Live that way. Whose faith follow. Considering the outcome of their conduct. Isn't that awesome? You see, you can't have good doctrine without duty. You, you can't just know things in your head and not live them. Because you can't follow something that's not a visible example or spoken to you. You, you can't learn from somebody who's unwilling to teach. And if you have learned from somebody who is willing to teach, then you can follow their example and the result is their conduct will be something that can guide you. What do I do in that situation? Well, I've already seen it. How do I act when, when that happens? I've already seen it. What do I do when those things come? I've already seen them live it. You know, every once in a while I'll, I'll look at my own physical things I have going on. and I'll, Well, I, I wind in the spirit like you guys do sometimes. You know, you just kind of grumble and complain. It's like, Lord, no. Oh. And you make your spiritual excuses. At least I do. I make spiritual excuses to God. I say, well, Lord, if I just felt better, I could do more for you. And then I think of Steve Mays. Three back surgeries in nine months. He, he's had his sinuses completely torn out and rebuilt with Dacron mesh. constantly just in agonizing pain. And I'm like, Lord, help me to toughen up a little bit because I've seen what it is to, to walk on this earth in real pain. Listen, they're thinking about Pastor Chuck. You know, you think you would think at near 85 years old, somebody that's done as much for the kingdom as he has, would just 
step out of the limelight and move on. And yet he steadfastly believes that God's called him to do greater things than these. Follow that example. Find people in your life who, who have lived a righteous life and exemplify Christ's love, who walk in faith, who aren't afraid to dream great things in God's kingdom ways, and follow them. I hope that to some of you, I'm that kind of an example. I, I pray that you see that. And you should see those things in each other. You need to look at each other's lives and go, man, I can learn from that person. I can learn from that man, that brother, that sister, that woman of God. I can, I can model that, that life of faith. Now, we have people in this church who, who've lost infants, loved ones, who deal with sickness every day. We have people in this church that are dying right now. They're still walking with Jesus, still loving the Lord. For Jesus Christ, notice this, what an eternal perspective. For Jesus Christ is the same. And the word that's translated there, same, is an exact replica of. It's not just it's not just same like there are two Coke cans and one's, you know, kind of a, a different shape. They're, they're literally the same. They're exactly the same. Jesus is exactly the same. He's not like two types of cars. You got a Buick and you got a Porsche. Those are both cars. This is exactness. Jesus is the same. He's not going to be a Yugo one day and a Cadillac CTS the next. He's always the Cadillac CTS, okay? He is the same. He was the same yesterday. And notice the tenses here. In the past. Jesus has always been the same. He's never been any different. What we know of Christ in the Garden of Eden as he probably was the one walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in that Christophany, or maybe it was God the Father, but as he was revealed in the Old Testament, there would have been no difference between Jesus then and Jesus now. He was the same yesterday. He's the same today. And that's very important. Because on a practical level, we only live in today. Amen? Think on this. In a practical sense, we can only deal with what we're living in right now. So we have the example that he's never been any different, that he is no different right now. That the grace, the mercy, the faith, the love, the tenderness, the gentleness, the kindness, the abounding mercies, the, the loving kindness of Jesus has always been and it is to you right now today. Never been any different. And you can walk that way in your relationship with people in the world. And you can walk that way in your own family and with your own children and with your siblings and your extended family and in your life in community and in your nation. You can live that way because you're enabled to live the life that Christ is now living in you. That's what Scripture says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I have the capacity to live like Jesus right now. What does that look like? We know what it looked like in the past. I can tell you, Jesus was very long-suffering with the Old Testament saints. I would have got me a new group of people. The Jews had been toast. They'd have got into the wilderness. They'd have been wandering around about the third grumbling and complaining thing. It's over. I'm burying you underneath Mount Sinai under a pile of dirt or something. Just going to go get me a new group of people. Not the Lord. Not my Jesus. Just kept pouring on grace and mercy. Consequences for sin? Oh, you better believe it. 
righteousness and holy living demanded of his people? You better believe it. Very high standard? Absolutely. But administered in grace and mercy. Tenderness, kindness, gentleness, meekness, humility. You ever thought about Christ being humble in your very present life? And then it says, and forever. And that word forever could also be translated into eternity. Forever is a word that, that translated into English doesn't even translate well. Even eternity actually doesn't do it justice. But it means that you can trust in who Jesus Christ is because of who he was in the past. We saw that because of who he is today. We experience that right now. And we can look forward to that always being and never being anything less than it always has been. So when you look at your life in Christ, and when we think about how we interact in our world and what, how we deal with people and the things that we do and say and how we act everywhere and every time, I can draw from who Jesus always has been, who he is today, and I can look forward and do it with great fervor for what yet lies ahead. See, very often we, we kind of live so much in the moment or the past that we forget that there's a future for the body of Christ. You know, one day you're going to rule and reign with Jesus. You're coming back to this earth. We get snatched off this rock. We're coming back with Jesus. You, you, you see, we have a forever component to our lives. And the point is this. We're supposed to live heavenly lives now. And we're supposed to continue that into what exists in the future. And the closer we are to that heavenly life now, the easier the transition is into the heavenly life later. It should give us pause to look at our own lives today. Are, are we living that way? You know, it, it gives us something, if you will, that is sure. Jesus served you faithfully. Have you ever thought about what it was like to be Jesus in heaven prior to his incarnation, looking down on what was going on on the earth, knowing that he was going to come into this world to save us, just rotten sinners? As you read the Old Testament, you look at what God allowed to happen and what mankind did because of our sin nature, throughout the course of human history, all the way up until the Incarnation, can you not see the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus? Man, all that compilation of the evil of man for thousands of years. People often say, well, you know, he was awful mean at Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he was righteous at Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was actually being merciful and kind to the rest of the world. Who knows if we would have even survived unto the day. Everybody talks about, well, look at all the wars. And, you know, he always commanded the Israelites to go and kill everybody. Can you imagine? Think about it in our modern context. Can you imagine what the world would look like if the U.S. hadn't entered the Second World War? Think about it. Can you imagine if we had not stood in, in the way of, of the former Soviet Socialist Republic and their desire to dominate the entire world, you'd all still be living in concrete buildings, driving Yugos, or some other funky, gnar, they have the gnarliest cars in Russia. It's just, they're, they're evil. <laughs> they can go 85, but they come apart at 87. <laughs> I've been in them. They're not fun to drive. Think about it. So when everybody says, no, God was so mean. In the old, no, God was absolutely perfectly righteous. And Jesus had to watch all the destruction of those lives during that period of time, recognizing that it was killing his heart. Every last death was a nail in the heart of Jesus. He was faithful. He said, Jesus knew our capacity for sin. He knew exactly what our world would look like today. And he came anyway. Hallelujah. 
He was faithful in the yesterday. He was faithful to go to the cross. He didn't have to. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Jesus did not have to go to the cross. God the Father wasn't sitting in heaven. Son, get down there. Right now, you're my son. Go down there. These evil, rotten, nasty people are going to continue to do this. You get down there right now and you save them. That isn't what Jesus declared about himself. He said, for this reason I came into this world. Save mankind from sin. It was a desire of his heart. Talk about faithful yesterday. How about today? You realize when Jesus left this earth, he did not go on a protracted extended vacation. You would think 32 and a half years on this earth, dealing with humankind, having, you know, your favorite guys be Peter and John and Matthew and Bartholomew, you know, I mean, think about the disciples. That was as good as mankind could do. And Jesus stayed here with those knuckleheads. And as they weren't getting it, every time he said, well, I've got to speak to them in parables again. Because I speak to them plainly, they don't get it, so I'll tell them a story. Hope they get it this time. You would have thought after that, he would have just gone back to heaven. Okay, Father God, I'm on vacation. The next thing that I really need to do is go back and fight the Battle of Armageddon. You let me know when that's on. I'll just blow the trumpet. They can come up here for the rapture. I don't actually have to go back down there again. I'll meet them in the air. But instead of taking a long vacation, Jesus has spent the last 2,000 years at the right hand of God interceding for you. Praying for you. Making sure you're okay. Praying to God the Father for you, for me. Talk about faithful. Because I know some of the dumb things I ask God. You can imagine when Jesus gets those. Oh, this one's from Jeff again. This will be good. He's asked the same dumb question for ten years now. Aren't you thankful that Jesus doesn't do that? He actually cares. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He never gets tired of hearing from you. He never gets turned off. He's always on duty. Faithful today. And he's going to remain faithful for he who began that good work in you is faithful to complete it, to finish it, to see it to fruition, to bring it to pass right up until the day of Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. You you see, when you think of the Lord that way, and you think of these little things that really, when you look at it in that light, you're going, man, okay, so what God wants for me is for me to be loving. God wants for me is, is for me to be hospitable. What God wants for me is, is for my life to speak his name to whoever will listen. For what God wants for me is for me to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. And for her to, to love me as I love her. And to, and to keep our physical relationship in the bonds of marriage so that the world will know how powerful that is. I'll tell you what, Satan is scared to death of Christian families. Scared to death. Because if if the world was ruled by Christian families, he'd have no kingdom. You, You see, and then you start to look at it from his perspective. He's always been faithful. He's never been less than faithful. He's never been less than loving and kind. And he wants to do that in your life right now. My life right now. And he wants to do that until we get to to be with him. You see, times change. 
but Jesus doesn't. Cultures change, but Jesus doesn't. And it's, isn't it crazy how many dumb things we actually put sincere, genuine trust in? I can't tell you how many things I've looked up on Wikipedia. And, well, I'll look it up on Wikipedia and, you know, type in my search parameters. And, oh, I didn't know that. But now I know that because I trust in Wikipedia. And then I realize that you can go on and actually change that anytime you want. Now ah, we trust in some lame stuff. Storage tanks. You ever thought about that? You, you, your water goes in a storage tank. It's just a piece of metal. It's not like there's like some force field around it. You don't go test and look inside there. And, Man, there's dead squirrels in here. That's where they all went. You just trust in it. You're drinking your water. No, man, this is awesome. You're, you totally trust in your water supply. Now, praise God, for the most part, it's absolutely wonderful. But you totally trust in it every single day. You realize that... that more people die from polluted water around the world every year than any other thing? You trust in life insurance. Well, I have life insurance. Well, what's keeping the guys honest? I mean, look at our country. You don't know whether you're ever going to get that life insurance if you die. And you're not going to know if you don't. Your family's going to know, but you aren't going to know. You're just going to be dead. <laughs> Honey, I've got a life insurance policy for you. But it's in Bob's company. How about bank vaults? Gold standard. You realize there's only like $640 billion in gold in, the, in Fort Knox right now? We have $15.9 trillion in national debt. Do the simple math. Your money's worth zip. And yet you walk around with your wallet. Oh, yeah, look, I got five bucks. <laughs> but you got, you know, in God we trust and... You're just all, you know, we're all that. You go around the world and you go, I've got dollars. And they go, we don't care. <laughs> we trust in all kinds of stuff on a daily basis. Emphatically trust in those things. With, with the very substance of our being. With our very lives, we trust in those kind of things. How much better is it to trust in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the great I Am? A creator God who loves you and came to this earth to die personally for you, for your sin. I'll tell you, we need to start trusting Jesus more and a whole lot less than things in this world. Worlds can be a wonderful place. And we're supposed to enjoy all things richly that he has made. His command is to us to enjoy what he's given us. But put your faith, your hope, and your trust in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, well, Lord, first we just say we're sorry. Lord, we trust in so many things at times. Lord, I trust in so many things. It's not as often and certainly isn't as long as it used to be, but there are times when I think each of us, if we're honest, we, we cast our eyes on the things of the world. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to always have an eternal perspective. Lord, we bless you. We, we thank you for your goodness and your great provision in our lives. Help us to be content with the things that we have. Lord, help us to love unconditionally as you love us. Lord, help us to put our faith and our trust and our hope in the one who's loved us from before the foundations of the world and will love us all the way until the end of time. Lord, into eternity. We bless you. We thank you. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anybody here tonight who's never taken that step of faith, never leaped, uh, into that relationship with you, Lord, by faith. Pray that you would reveal yourself right now by your Spirit. And pray that 
Uh, we would each one of us walk away from this building, Lord, with our, with our eyes fixed on heaven and with our hope and trust and faith uh, in our Lord who is, who is also our King. And so, God, if there's people here tonight that need to do some business with you, we pray as we end the service and we gather in the front to pray that they'd simply come and confess you as Lord. Give their lives, Lord, fully over to you. Lord, each one of us will never see heaven without you, Jesus. We thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. Lord, bless us as your people. Encourage us. Lord, meet each need. Mend each heart. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.